number one for R&B. Coming to you live from the studios of 107.5 WBLS, this is Open Line. We want to hear what's on your mind. Call us at 212-545-1075 or email us at openlinefm at aol.com. And welcome to Open Line here on 107.5 WBLS-FM. I'm your host, Brother Fatin, and today is the first Sunday of February, February 4th, to be exact. Black History Month 2024, and later this evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, the 2024 and the 66th Annual Grammys Award will be taking place at the Crypto.com Arena in Los Angeles. All right, so folks will be tuned into that and see who's going to win and who's going to be a little brokenhearted this evening. I'm joined by my co-host, whom I call the sophisticated lady. She is CEO of the Federation of Protestant Welfare Agencies, also known as FPWA. And she is the vice chair of the National Action Network's executive board under the leadership of Reverend Al Sharpton. I'm talking about my good sister, Jennifer Jones, Austin Esquire. Jennifer, good morning. How are you doing this morning? Good morning. Uh, I'm smiling this morning. I'm smiling because, uh, you know, you always put a smile on my face and you say such generous uh, things about me. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. All things considered, all that's going on in the world, I'm finding some peace and I'm finding some joy. And I hope that everybody's trying to do the same. Good to hear your voice, my brother, and good to be with all of our listeners today and with our guests. Exactly. It's great to hear your voice. And normally joining us, Jennifer, every first Sunday of the month uh, is Professor Ron Daniels, who is the president of the Institute of the Black World 21st Century and convener of the National African-American Reparations Commission. But this Sunday, Professor Daniels is off. Why is he off? Is because he is traveling this morning to Grenada to participate in the 50th anniversary of the nation's independence. And Professor Daniels will give us a report when he returns back to the states and back to the broadcast. We may have him on before his scheduled time next month. Uh, before we get into our topic surrounding black history and bringing on our very, very special guest, this past Thursday, we saw history taking place uh, where, Jennifer, you was up and close and personal. The installation of Reverend Dr. Fred, uh, Frederick Douglass A. Haynes III as president. Uh, CEO of the Rainbow Push Coalition, and this event took place in Dallas, Texas. Kind of fill us in, Sister Jennifer, of uh, what took place this past Thursday. So let me just quickly say that Reverend Dr. Frederick Douglas Haynes once told the story. He's a third, and he once told the story of uh, his father being asked his name. Uh, his grand, I'm sorry, his grandfather being asked his name. Uh, didn't have a name. He was in class, or he didn't know what to like. You know, his family called him something, but he didn't know if that was the proper name. And he just called out Frederick Douglass Haynes, and that's how he became Frederick Douglass Haynes the first, and his grand, uh, his father Jr., and then him the third. He'd give a lengthier uh, uh, story about it, but that's the short of it. He just grabbed the name, and he knew it had significance. He knew of the significance of uh, Frederick Douglass Haynes, Frederick Douglass, I should say, and he ran with it. Frederick Douglass. That was. 
that was all over the map, but you got where I'm going. Um, so I was at the inauguration. Uh, it was historical in uh, the sense that it was the first time uh, that we witnessed a founder of a civil rights organization pass the torch while living and still able to contribute. Uh, Rainbow Push Coalition was founded by uh, Reverend Jesse L. Jackson, and uh, he uh, selected uh, Reverend Frederick Douglass Haynes out of uh, out of Dallas, Texas, who's long been a social justice preacher and activist. He selected him to carry on the torch and move forward, and it was a wonderful occasion. Uh, our our dear friend and uh, supporter, mentor, uh, Reverend Sharpton, was on hand. He stepped up and delivered the keynote for uh, the event and was masterful. Uh, you know, the statesman that he is, he uh, show, uh, let Frederick uh, Douglass Haynes III know that he uh, was welcoming him, welcoming him on behalf of all civil rights organizations, uh, historic and some that have been added in recent years, welcoming him to the table, uh, just as uh, Jesse Jackson welcomed him goodness, maybe 60 years ago. So it was a beautiful moment, and uh, I believe that Reverend uh, Haynes is president and CEO Haynes, I should say, is now poised to take the reins and run, and um, he's committed, he's sincere, uh, dedicated, uh, he's done some of the work, uh, and we just see what God has in store for him in this new role. Perfect, perfect. I, I think that's a, a perfect setup and springboard into our next conversation. And a lot of times we don't see, we look back. And I remember sitting in the studio one time with Reverend Al Sharpton and saying, you know, we're seeing our civil rights leaders get a chance to see their children grow, grow up and have children. They are able to see their grandchildren. There's a time where we didn't, uh, our civil rights leaders were cut down. Some didn't even see the age of 40. You know, so this is so important of passing that torch. And this is going to kind of springboard us into the conversation where we're going to go. And as I stated at the beginning of today's broadcast, February is Black History Month. It's usually the shortest month of the, of, of, of the calendar year, 28 days. This year is a leap year, so we have 29 days. And this is the month where uh, where we uh, look at the achievements by African-Americans and a time for recognizing their central role in United States history. Also known as African American History Month, the event grew out of Negro History Week, the brainchild of noted historian Carter G. Woodson. Um, and I see it so fitting to focus on two individuals that stood tall for civil and human rights here in America for black people. And those that I'm speaking about are Mega Evers and his wife, Merle Evers. And here to talk about their legacy and has written a new book, which will be out this Tuesday, February 6th, titled Mega and Merle. Mega Evers and the Love Story That Awakened America is my sister and friend, Joy Reed, who is the host of award-winning cable news show, The Readout, which is weeknights from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time on MSNBC. She previously hosted the weekend program AM Joy from 2016 to 2020 and a daily news show, The Read report from 2014 to 2015. Joy, good morning and welcome my sister to Open Line. Brother Fatine, Sister Jennifer, good morning and thank you for having me. 
Thank you for joining us. And I just want folks to know, and I forgot, I, I briefly looked at the book on, online and I went to Barnes and Nobles yesterday and the gentleman looked it up and he said, oh, that book doesn't come out to February 6th, this Tuesday. And I said, <laughs> I did notice that. I forgot. I said, I want to surprise you. I'm going to purchase this book. I'm not going to ask her to send me a copy. I'm <laughs> going to support you on this. But before we get into our discussion on your new book on Megger and Merle Evers, this past Thursday, as we talked about the installation of uh, Reverend Dr. Uh, Freddie Haynes the third. Um, this past Thursday, we found out that we lost a giant in our community. And I'm talking about radio personality and civil rights advocate Joe Madison, known as the Black Eagle, who was a renowned radio personality and civil rights advocate who transitioned his passion for justice from the civil rights movement to a successful broadcast career. Joe Madison played a crucial role in voter mobilization efforts, including leading the March for Dignity and collecting signatures for anti-apartheid bills in Congress. Madison Series XM Morning Show, Urban View on Urban View Station 126, attracted approximately 26 million daily listeners since 2007, where he addressed contemporary issues affecting the African-American community. In 2015, he achieved the Guinness World Record for the longest on-air broadcast, raising over $250,000 for the Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Joe Madison played a pivotal role in the passage of the Emmett Till anti-lynching bill or lynching act in 2020. And he recently undertook a hunger strike for Congress to pass and President Biden to sign the Freedom to Vote Act or the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Unfortunately, that hasn't, hasn't taken place. Joe Madison, the Black Eagle, passed at 76 years of age from, uh, from prostate cancer. However, he left behind a lasting legacy. I just wanted to say, give a little uh, window of who Joe Madison, to those folks that may have not known the Black Eagle and what his contributions to us as a people here uh, in America, especially us as Black people. Joy, I want to get your, your comments about Joe Madison. Then I'll turn to you, Jennifer. Yeah, no, Joe, and, and also in addition, that was just a wonderful guy. Funny, um, his show was fantastic and so informative. Um, you know, and, and ironically enough, since I'm here to talk about the book, I mean, Joe Madison was actually my last interview. My final interview that I did for Megger Murley was Joe Madison, because in addition to that uh, illustrious resume, he actually is the reason Murley Evers um, took the lead of the NAACP. Um, and he is the one who encouraged her to become the national leader of the NAACP, something she had, had no desire to do, but he talked her into it. You know, he drove her to um, to the, the cemetery in Washington, D.C., to Arlington National Cemetery. They do it, you know, annually. She would visit Maker's Grave, and um, at one of the trips that she took, he went with her, and he used the occasion to talk her into becoming um, the new leader of the organization because he said, you know, Megger would have wanted it and that the organization needed her leadership. So he played a pivotal role in that as well and was a dear friend of the family. Um, and one of, as you mentioned, um, Brother Fatim, one of his kind of final acts of stewardship of our community, uh, you know, of, of, of our world was he undertook a hunger strike 
um, you know, he was somebody who lived his his beliefs. He lived he he lived his creed. You know, he was a heroic civil rights leader as well as just a good guy. Yes, definitely. Mm. Gen- Jennifer, your thoughts. The very first time uh, I uh, met him, it was at a National Action Network breakfast on Martin Luther King Jr. Day down in Washington, D.C. And, uh, you know, I, I'm i one of those people. I'm a little, you all know, I'm a little policy wonky, and uh, I get caught up in, like, the people who are doing the work. I'm not as starstruck about, like, you know, what celebrities, entertaining celebrities. Love them. Uh, they keep me entertained. But I get really excited when I see people who are doing the work. And um, I did not really, I hadn't listened to him, but my sister, Leslie Diane, uh, she would call me all the time and say, oh, you need to hear Joe Madison, what he's saying on the radio, you know, what are you going to do about it? And so when I met him, I was, I was in awe. I was in many ways starstruck because this was, an, this was, he was an individual who was using his platform all out injustice and then to challenge not only himself but others uh even you know prominent people to do the work to do the work that was necessary in the moment and for the future of us as a people and and even beyond you know these 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 uh this land you know he pushed many years ago for the ending of apartheid he was just a force and well i keep on coming back to he used his platform you know you know, I have to say, Joy, you use your platform, but there are not many people who have been gifted the opportunity to, you know, speak to the masses, uh, you know, black and other, and speak truth. And uh, and like you, Joe Madison used his platform in that way, and he will be missed for that reason. Right, well, I appreciate Bruce. you saying that. That's a big deal to be compared to to to, to, to the Black Eagle. So thank you. There you go. And folks, you can chime in on the conversation as we uh, examine the life of Mega and Merle Evers and the importance of Black History Month and wh- why we have to keep our legacy alive, especially in a time where they're cutting, uh, uh, taking out our books out of schools and libraries. Uh, when it's Black History Month down in Florida, uh, certain people in the past have tried to speak about Black history and have been barred about speaking about that. To chime in on our conversation and speak with our special guest, Joy Reid, give us a call, 212-545-1075. Again, 212-545-1075. Again, we're speaking to MSNBC host of The Readout, Joy Reid, and her new book will hit uh, bookstores this Tuesday, February 6th, and the book is titled Mega and Merle Mega Evers and the Love Story That Awakened America. Jennifer's going to kick off the first question, but I want to read this quote to, to our uh, listening audience, and Jennifer's going to kick it off. And this is from your book, Joy. It states, Mega Evers deserves a place alongside Malcolm X and Dr. King in, our his- in historical memory. Evers with Murley as his partner in activism and in life was doing civil rights work in the single most hostile and dangerous environment in America. And I pass that off to Sister Jennifer for that first question to you, Joy. Go ahead, Jennifer. So I'm going to start right there. You know, you, you, you often are uh, declarative and bold in your statements. Uh, your declarations, you know, always like have us thinking, ooh, okay, where's she going? That's a really bold statement. And, you know, like to be put up there with Malcolm and Martin, tell us, tell us why. 
Tell us why you believe what you've written. Well, you know, the reason I say that is because James Baldwin said it. <laughs> and I will, I will agree with anything that the great James Baldwin says. James Baldwin believed that the three, you know, great wow. civil rights movement were Medgar, Malcolm, and Martin, that the three of them went together. He knew all three. Um, he actually experienced riding into the Delta with um, Medgar as he went to try to empower these terrified, um, you know, sharecroppers in the Delta who could be lynched for anything, looking at a white woman wrong, being rude to a white person, not crossing the street and getting off the sidewalk when a white person walked by, being rude to a white child. Like you could literally be lynched for everything, anything in the American South, and especially Mississippi, which was the lynchingest state in the entire United States. And the reason that I would say he deserves a place in the pantheon with Malcolm and with Martin is that, you know, Martin, Dr. King was, you know, obviously a heroic individual who galvanized a nation uh, to stand up for itself and, and, and to use peace, uh, peaceful means to fight for our basic human dignity. Malcolm, you know, was the one who said, no, we can stand up as men and we can, you know, be manly and, and, and we don't have to cower and we don't have to, yes, a boss, white man, we can actually be individuals and be strong. But Medgar did all of those things, but he did them in Mississippi. He did them in the most dangerous state in the United States to be black. He did them in the place where you were the most likely to be lynched, where they were so bold, they lynched a northern child, Emmett Till, and, white, and two white men from the north, from New York. Right, you know, right, they were so right. bold, they would openly lynch white people. They were they were they were so unafraid of justice because there was no justice. I mean, literally, the the two men, uh, one of whom was just like Mega, a World War II veteran, which gives a lie to the fact that this was the fully the heroic generation. Some of them were fascists. Some of them were murderers. Um, they openly killed a 14 year old boy from Chicago and they knew they wouldn't be convicted because up until at least the late 1960s, if not later, it was perfectly legal to kill black people in the South and especially in Mississippi. It was the unwritten rule that you would not be convicted of killing a black person for any reason you wanted. You know, and Medgar witnessed and saw the results of the first lynching that he experienced when he was a little kid. He was either seven or 11, depending on which brother he or his brother Charles was telling the story. He's walk, they're walking to school and saw the remnants of the clothes of a man their father knew who was lynched because supposedly he sassed a white woman. And the white people who lynched this man, Mr. Tingle, left his clothes, bloody clothes, on display for a year in Mississippi in, in, the, in Decatur. Wow. Um, so that wow. every black person would know this is what will happen to you yeah. if you sass us or you rise up in any way. So to me, Megger did everything that the other two greats did, but the fact that he did them in Mississippi and did them and mm -hmm. empowered the most disempowered black people in America, to me, makes him as heroic, if not to me, mm -hmm. the sort of most bold and brave um, leader uh, of that era. And by the way, he was the first to get assassinated of the three. He was killed five mm -hmm. years before Dr. King. Mm. It's interesting when I got a chance to watch the Mega Ever story as a young kid, um, I was watching it, and when I saw him, the, the, the way the film showed it, he was coming home, and he was shot down in his driveway, and I was like, this story is so parallel to Martin Luther King. But you said he was the mm -hmm. first. 
And he was the first. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I was like, this is because I didn't know much at the particular time about Mega Evers. Joy, let me ask you this question. Mega Evers and Merle Evers played such a pivotal role in the civil rights movement. Could you share some of the most significant lessons or insights you gained about their activism and a broader struggle for racial equality while researching and writing this book? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that did kind of blow my mind was the connectedness of Maker Evers, his language and his uh, his work to all the other activism that we know much more about in Mississippi. For instance, you know, he is the one who coined the term first class citizenship. It was his favorite line that that is what black people were demanding. Uh, and as a World War II veteran, he had even double reason to demand it, having been shot at for his country um, and, and willing to die for his country in the uniform. And he came home and said, no, we deserve first class citizenship, which to him meant voting, but not just the right to vote and access to the ballot. It also meant the right to be called ma'am and missus uh, in a store um, and treated with respect, uh, not called girl or, or preacher or you or, or boy, you know, by, uh, by even children, even white children. It also meant being able to try on clothes in the department store when we went to shop. Uh, it meant being able to take your children to the zoo and take your children to the movies and not have to sit in the balcony. To him, first-class citizenship meant if you were black, you should be able to do anything a white person can do without fear of lynching or fear of, of retribution. And that phrase, first-class citizenship, then gets coined by the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party when Fannie Lou Hamer gives her, uh, her, her presentation at the Rules Committee. She stands up at the, at the dais and says, what we ask for is first-class citizenship. That's his language. She was actually in jail, um, you know, uh, for trying to register herself and others to vote on the day he died and mar- remarked upon that. Um, the fact that you had Goodwin, Schwerner, and Cheney you know, uh, uh, lynched um, and discarded in Earthen Dam in Mississippi. Well, Cheney was a young activist who was trained in the NAACP youth committees that Megger Evers was standing up around the state. Cheney starts out in high school. His first act of activism is to pin a handwritten NAACP membership sticker and put it on his clothes and get expelled at, at 15 years old. He begins as a Medgar Evers activist, and that is how he begins. And then it winds up being the liaison to these northern activists who come to Mississippi. The Freedom Riders, many of the Mississippi-based Freedom Riders, had also gone through Medgar Evers' NAACP Youth Councils. These youth councils were the training ground for NAACP activists. He would literally drive them around in his Oldsmobile back and forth to meetings into mass meetings. That's where they were trained. A lot of them were later attracted to SNCC because the NAACP institutionally was very opposed to direct action. They were opposed to things like sit-ins, et cetera. Mega was for them. He was in favor of them. And even though he had clashes with uh, people like Bob Moses about their methods, um, and really his fundamental class was that he believed Mississippians had to fight for their own freedom and not have Northerners come and do it for them. He believed in direct action. It was the reason he had so much tension with his bosses. Uh, and then his, uh, the last thing I'll add is that he was actually, um, when he died, the thing he was preparing to do was to go to Washington to testify in favor of a Civil Rights Act. 
he had been actively uh, engaged in conversation and really angry conversation with the Kennedy administration demanding that they send federal troops to Mississippi. He's the one who was pushing them to send federal troops to Mississippi and federal observers to Mississippi. And he was so active that when Kennedy gives his speech the night before Baker is killed, he uses some of the lines and activism and the words that Medgar had used in a landmark television address. He was the first black civil rights activist to be able to speak on television in Mississippi. He gives this landmark TV address. Some of that language winds up in Kennedy's address. And Kennedy talks about first-class citizenship, another fellow World War II veteran. And then when Kennedy, when, um, when Medgar is assassinated and cut down in front of his own home, the person to whom Kennedy hands a copy of the civil rights bill that he's bowing to bring before Congress, the person he gives that to is Merle Evers. When she brings her children and Charles Evers, Baker's brother, to the White House, he, the gift he, he gives the children each a gift, the gift he gives her is a copy of that Civil Rights Act. And his failure to follow through on pushing that bill through because he gets distracted trying to do a tax cut is the reason they do the March on Washington. And Dr. King gives this famous speech that the white, well, the white conservatives love to quote one line from. The original version of that speech he gave actually in Detroit to tw- in front of 20,000 people. And the line that gets cut out of the April, 29, uh, April 28, 1963 speech, but that's in the Detroit version of the same speech, is I have a dream that one day people like Megger Evers and Emmett Till will be able to live into adulthood and live their lives, dig- and their, live their dignified lives. So he actually calls out Megger Evers and Emmett Till in the speech, but that later gets cut out of his final version of the speech. So his through, the through line, even his connection to Dr. King, because he was trying to reproduce Dr. King's Birmingham movement in Mississippi. That's the reason he was in trouble all the time wow. with New York. Hmm is that he wanted to bring Dr. King down and he wanted to duplicate what Dr. King was doing in Alabama in Mississippi. So the connection between particularly King and um, Mar- uh, and Ma- King and, uh, and Medgar is so direct. You know, it was literal in the time. And the connection to Malcolm is that he didn't believe in violence. <laughs> he, he had guns all over the house. He, was, he believed in fighting back. He believed in warfare. And when he was killed... Part of the reason there was so much blood on the driveway is he was trying to drag himself into his house because he was going to get his guns. Like, he did not believe in nonviolence at all. Wow. Wow. Standing up, standing you know, up. This is... it's... Wow. Hi, Jennifer. I was just going to say, as I'm listening to you, uh, I feel like I'm appreciating all the more why he has not uh, been, you know, by, you know, white society and establishment, you know, put up, like, up there with Martin because... You know, he had a rebellious spirit in the lights of Nat Turner, and he was he was dangerous, you know, in the sense that yeah. he was he was out there doing the work, and he was challenging in the most dangerous places, and that is inspirational. That you know that that can you know stir other people to say, why am I not standing up and speaking up and calling things out and like just in the face of people. That's tremendous. And I just want you to know, I just went online and I got the book, so I'm going to have it on Tuesday. You fired me up. I'm ready to read. There you go. <laughs> it's Thank our you. history. This is our history, folks. Black history and the history of America. And we have to make sure that we keep it alive because if we leave it in the hands of other folks, their agenda is not our agenda. 
You got to remember that. What we're doing is, folks, we're speaking with Joy Reid about her new book, which will hit uh, the bookstores this coming Tuesday, Mega and Merle, Mega Evers and the Love Story That Awakened America. What we're going to do is we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to come back to your phone calls here uh, on Open Line. To reach us here on Open Line, you can give us a call, 212-545-1075. Again, 212-545-1075. We'll take this quick break, and we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Open Line right here on 107.5 WBLS with Brother Fatine and Jennifer Jones. Austin Esquire with our special guest, Joy Reid, who is the host of the award-winning cable news show, The Readout, which is weeknights from 7 to 8 p.m. on MSNBC. And she is here talking about her new book titled Mega and Merle, Mega and Merle. Mega Evers and the love story that awakened America. To reach us here on Open Line, give us a call, 212-545-1075. You can reach us on Facebook and X, formerly known as Twitter, by going to WBLS 1075 NYC. And we're streaming live at WBLS.com. And before we return to Joy and our callers couple of quick announcements. The open line online, the second hour on WBLS's Facebook page will begin at 9, 10 a.m. this morning. Join me and the open line online team as we will be discussing the life and legacy of Joe Madison with Reverend Mark Thompson, host of Make It Plain podcast. We will also speak with Ruben Diaz Jr., former Bronx Borough president, on the 25th anniversary of the shooting death of Amadou Diallo by the NYPD Street Crime Unit back on this date, February 4th, 1999. That's something that we we were very active in that trying to get justice for the Amadou Diallo family. Uh, We will also discuss the life and career of actor and director Carl Weathers, who who's known for playing Apollo Creed in the Rocky movies, who also died this week at the age of 76. Sunday morning with Reverend Al Sharpton will be coming up at 9 a.m. to be followed by Express Yourself with Imhotep Gary Bird at 10 a.m. this morning on the On Air here at WBLS. All right, let's uh, go to the phones. We have the phones, Phil. I'll kick off the phones here. Let's go to line seven and bring Brenda calling us from Yonkers this morning. Good morning, Brenda. Welcome to Open Line. Good morning. My name is Brenda Ricketts, and I'm a member of the African American Genealogy and Historical Society in New York. I wanted to speak on the importance of young people speaking to their elders. As a genealogist, I realize the wealth of information and history I received from my great-grandmother. She died at the age of nearly 100 in 1974. So um, speak to your elders because that oral history will help you understand who you are. And as a genealogist, I dig. 
I dig into my family's history, and it makes me feel so much better. I have ancestors that were everyday people, but they did extraordinary things. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brenda. Appreciate that call. Let's go to line four and bring Lisa calling us from Queens this morning. Good morning, Lisa. Welcome to Open Line. Your thoughts. Good morning. Remember when I said we need to um, keep archives of our ancestors? It's very important. But what I wanted to say to you, um, Joy Reed, I just want to welcome you to our family, our beautiful African queen. And I also wanted to say that we have another queen that's still living. Her name is Dr. Debbie Thomas. She won the 1986 gold medal. She's a figure skater. And she also became a surgeon. She did hip surgery. But now what she's doing is teaching little kids how to skate. But we have a lot of history. We just have to look it up. And we had a New York City Holocaust right here of our own people in 1863, July 11, 1863, when our newly free um, people after the Civil War were attacked by the Irish. But anyway, everyone have a great day. All right. Appreciate that, Lisa. Thank you. Let's go to uh, let's go to line two and bring Sharon calling us from New Jersey. Good morning, Sharon. Your thoughts this morning. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, good morning, Miss um, Joy Reed. Um, your book, your book is necessary. I know a lot about Black history, but I did not know everything that you were talking about about Megar Evers. Uh, your book is so necessary because we know a lot about um, Dr. King and Malcolm X. But I will definitely be getting your book, and also I love your show. I watch it every night. Uh, so informative on MSNBC. And, uh, and one more thing is that black history is American history. All right. You can't separate because I tell my students, I'm a teacher. I tell my students, I ask them, I said, why is um, black history American history? You know why? Because it happened in America. Thank you. Right. Amen. Amen to that. And thank you. Very true. And you know what's interesting that to bring together what the three previous callers have said, you know, doing the genealogy work was like a big part of the work that we did, even putting this book together. Actually, for the first time, I, as a Gen Xer, we don't ask for help. Uh, I, I don't know if, if Sister Jennifer can understand as black women. In, in, I don't know if you're Gen X, but I'm in Gen X and we don't ask for help. But uh, I, yeah. I use this. <laughs> I'm with you. You can right, relate, right? You can overstand. But this time I actually did use researchers. I hired two researchers from Howard University, one undergrad who was just the king of spreadsheets, uh, who I later ended up hiring as my assistant for the readout, uh, and then uh, assistant named Angela Pashayan, who's a brilliant researcher, grad student. <clears throat> and one of the things we did was we dug into the genealogy of the Evers family and of Murley's family. And the thing mm. that's so fascinating is to your point that you know, black history is American history. The last sister who's an educator said, and the previous sister who's a genealogist, they're, geneal they're tracing them back to enslavement. We trace them back to enslavement. And both families were enslaved in Mississippi. And Mississippi was the, um, it, it had, it, Mississippi had the highest grade cotton in the world, not just in America, but in the world. 
And one of the reasons that Mississippi fought so hard to keep slavery, as most as all of the South did, is that it was so lucrative that Mississippi was actually the richest state in America. It was the single richest state in America. It was the California of the pre-Civil War era. And it, the cotton there was so prized that it was the favorite cotton used by the king and queen of England. That's who wanted that cotton more than anybody else. And so you had this incredible system that making, um, you know, misery of black lives, but that was making these white planters incredibly rich. This is why they hung on to it so hard that after slavery was over, they tried to keep the system in place as much as they could and, and keep black people in a sense of almost slavery as sharecroppers. That's why Mississippi was so dangerous, because after the Civil War, Mississippi was a majority black state. It was 54 percent black. And so when Reconstruction happened, uh, imposed by northern troops, Mississippi had the most successful Reconstruction. They had a black lieutenant governor. Um, one of the street of the street where where the NAACP offices are located in Jackson is called Lynch Street. But it's not Lynch Street like the guy who created Lynch Law. It's not Lynch Street like hanging a man. It's Lynch named after the former black lieutenant governor of Mississippi. Because during Reconstruction, blacks were winning the postmaster general of Mississippi was black. You know, they had black black people sprinkled throughout the government because black people were the majority. So black men were the majority voters over white men. That's why they the backlash was so fierce. And in 1890, they passed a new constitution after the, the Compromise of 1877 unleashed Southern whites to take back their power. They passed the most restrictive constitution in the country. The last thing I'll add is that the Everts family, to the point of the sister who called and talked about oral history and talking to your elders, Merle Evers used to lay at the feet of her grandmother, who was a slave. The grandfather was an enslaved person. And she, up until she was five years old, that lady was alive. So people in this era, in Megger and Merle's era, Miss Merle is 90. They knew sla- enslaved people. Enslaved people were part mm-hmm. of their family. They were their grandmothers. You know, my, grand, my mother's grandmother was a slave. My mom was born in 1929. Miss Murley was born in 1933. My mother knew her grandmother, who was enslaved. My mother's, my, my last enslaved member of my family died in 1906 at 106 years old. She was enslaved at age seven in Ghana and went taken to Guyana. So enslaved people are people that our grandparents knew mm-hmm. directly. They were alive. And there were enslaved people. People, you know, make the the point that, you know, um, Harriet Tubman was alive during the presidency of John Adams and Ronald Reagan. She lived into the age when Ronald Ronald Reagan was born uh, a few years before Harriet Tubman died. So she was alive during the presidencies of a president during enslavement and Ronald Reagan. So we try to act like our history is ancient. It's not American history, but it is both. It is both non-ancient, it is recent, and slavery, people who were enslaved lived into the 1940s and were interviewed. Their TV, their interviews, that you can see visually, and former enslaved people speak. So, it's you, know, not, you, know, you know, people try to make us get it, but we shouldn't. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Ms. Jennifer. Right. And no, no, no. I just want to, I, I want you to build on that a little bit for us, because so much of our history is not uh, in the textbooks. It's not documented. You might not be able to find all that you need in the Library of Congress. How much, uh, how much of your book is based on all history, the recordings of interviews and conversations with people who lived during that time or before, or even people who are still living, you know, like who are still today and they have 
information that was passed down to them. How much of the book is based on oral history? And what does that tell us about what we should be doing? Much of the book is based on oral history because I actually went down to Jackson and interviewed uh, first person sources. So we went uh, on to the Evers Old Block, which used to be called Gine Street. They've renamed it from uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, 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 the sort of queen of the block. And um, but at the time it was called Gine Street. A lot of those people still live on that street. It was a very wow. stable block. It was a one block middle class enclave that was designed actually by two black architects who were historic in their own right. And they built this block um, that was the only place that middle-class blacks could live um, in segregated Mississippi. The two adjoining blocks were all white and, you know, uh, segregation was so strict that no black person of course could live on one of those blocks, but this one street was a subdevelopment. And, we interviewed Miss Murley's best friend was the lady across the street, Miss Joe. Um, she interviewed with us on her hospital bed. But by the way, this is how fabulous she was. She was in a hospital bed, um, but she had her bright red lip on and was dressed in a nine that was very fashionable. <laughs> she was very fly. Um, she has since passed. God rest her soul. But Miss Joe was fly, and she was known for her fashion. And she would make her clothes because. Black women couldn't try on clothes. Black people couldn't try on clothes in the department mm-hmm. stores. So she refused to go into the department stores. She actually made her clothes, and she would get these patterns from McCall's and produce these pa- these these outfits herself. Wow. And they said she was the best dressed woman in Jackson. And so she came. So she was fully red lipped, honey. And then we also interviewed uh, Miss Murley's other best friend was her the neighbor to the side, the the, the next neighbor next to her. Uh, we interviewed the daughter who actually saw the the killing she actually was 15 years old and was looking out her window she heard the shot and she saw the aftermath of the shooting she and her sister were looking out the window and saw mr megger trying to drag himself into the house so we we, we talked to witnesses. we also spoke with their neighbors down the street the suites uh one of them the daughter is now a judge but they lived on that block and so we spoke to them their mom still has that house so these people didn't move, wow. they stayed. And so a lot of these people are still here. And we also did take advantage um, of oral history, um, but also just, you know, so audio recordings, obviously, of people of the time. But we also just tracked down a lot of the young activists that worked with Megger and that rode with him and just mm-hmm. talked to them. Because these people are mostly still alive. Wow. wow. They're 80 wow. and 90 and 70, you know, but they're, they're still, they still have their memories Ooh. and, uh, were willing to speak with us. This is a lesson this morning, folks. This is a lesson. Yes. Jennifer, let's continue and take a couple more calls. All right. Let's go to let's go to line uh, five, uh, Nettleton from Georgia. Good morning, Nettleton. Yes, good morning. Morning. My name is Nettleton. Good morning. I'm glad I was able to get into it. I've been trying for the longest. <clears throat> My name is Nelton Kumalo. I used to live in Harlem. I've been a listener of your show, Brother Fatima and Jones, and I learned a lot. In fact, you encouraged me to get involved in the community activities and all what is going on. But I wanted to also miss Joy. I'm a fan of your show. I've been listening to you before you have your show. Now Thank I you. listen to you every day. Now, I'm encouraged by you guys all speaking about the history, but it's important. Part of the reason they're trying to ban books 
in Florida and in Florida and everywhere. It is a reason for the fact that they don't want us to know the history and also they want to twist it and tell lies. So, but I also concerned that <clears throat> most of our youth is so caught up, is so um, addicted to social media. Instead of, uh, I hardly see them when I go to the library and just having a book. I know now it's so it's a technology world, but <clears throat> I so wish like many leaders can encourage our youth to read and get information for yourself. Because when you get somewhere else, it's twisted and there's some lies into it. So as a black history man, I just want to encourage the youth that you can just black history. No history for yourself. One of the things, because I'm from South Africa, by the way, one of the major things I did when I came into this country, I went and learned to library. I used to research about Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and all the leaders, what it is they did, and know it for myself, and watch the videos, and watch and read the history. Oftentimes, when you have only hear some time from the school, there's some twist, but there's nothing when we hear from ourselves. Like you, George, just mentioned, you want to interview people who live this, mm-hmm. and how we are so connected with our history. I'm from South Africa. How our, our history is connected, and how it can also move us forward, and know exactly how it's connected even today. So I just want mm-hmm. to say, as a black history man, let's know our own history and encourage our youth to read and get involved. And lastly, for election, oh please, Nelton, please, Nelton, please. I got to hold you there because I got to get a couple, try to get a couple more calls. And you said some profound things, and I'm going to let you respond respond to that. Thank you for your call, and thank you for listening online. But want to try to squeeze in one more call, Jennifer. Uh, let's go to line five to Cliff from Connecticut. Cliff, you're with us. Good morning. All right. Well. Let's see if we have anybody else. I think that my my uh, list shows that we have no one else. All right. Well, let's go line six with us. Yes, thank you. This is Cliff from Connecticut. My question is, based on our history, is there is there is America still a racist country? And then, if so, or if not, does black people contribute to that racism? All right. Thank you for that call. I'll let Joy respond to that. Joy. That's that's an interesting question. Uh, do black people contribute to it? Um, well, let me start with um, the first caller um, because I have to note that um, thank you. South Africa is right now the hero of the global South. Like I, I agree with him that you, we we do need to encourage people to read. You know, for me growing up, you know, I, my mom used to take my brother, my sister, and I to the library just unleash us. You know, we could go around and read whatever we wanted, take whatever books out we wanted. And it was empowering in the sense that we get to choose what we wanted to read. And, you know, we would then come to the, you know, the little counter and the librarian would check us out. And we just felt so grown up, you know, that we'd pick these books, that we had our little card, you know, and that we had to remember to bring them back. We had to be on a schedule that when the books have to come back on time, et cetera. It was empowering as a kid. And I actually love to read. So, I really do encourage kids um, to read, particularly now that they're trying to take books from us, trying to take our history away from us, banning books. You know, that should tell you how valuable that those who are doing it understand that learning and knowledge is. That's why they're trying to ban it. So fight back by actually reading and knowing your history. And God bless South Africa, which is standing up for the global South in a way that you're not seeing many other countries do. Um, They did file that ICJ case against Israel, um, but it just shows that South Africa actually has a voice 
in the United Nations in a way that we haven't seen an African country have. And so, you know, God bless South Africa. And I, I, you all did mention that this is the anniversary of Amadou Diallo's killing. I still remember that. I was in New York uh, and I remember the activism of uh, Reverend Sharp and others around it. And God bless Kadiatu Diallo. She's one of the greats who should also, um, people should praise her response and her activism as a result. Um, and then the second person, the second gentleman, Cliff, yeah, America's a racist country. I mean, you can't have a country built on, you know, um, congenital race-based slavery in its institutional founding and not be a racist country. It just it is built on white supremacy. Um, but it's it's dismantleable if people are willing to dismantle it. You know, I don't see how you can say black people are contributing it because all we're doing is trying to live and survive here and fight against, you know, people trying to say that after a very brief time of having actual civic freedom, after maybe 50 years of equality, everything's now being taken back. It's like you've had enough. You don't need mm-hmm. affirmative action. We're going to take everything back. And we're also going to sue to make sure that, you know, Rudy Huxtable's little uh, organization can't give $20,000 grants to black women, despite mm-hmm. the fact that black women only get 1% of, of funding mm-hmm. to our to our businesses so and, and despite the fact that black women start more businesses than any other group of people in this country we're being told one percent is too much you can't have that one percent we're going to take that too and we can't you I can't get into these schools etc just saying yeah i know we can go we can go for a couple of hours here <laughs> yes real quick because we are out of time joy how can folks yes. get your book and how can people contact you um, you guys can uh, please take, get it, get the book and get it online. Uh, support Black Bookstores. If you go to my Instagram, speaking of social media, I'm at Joanne Reed, J-O-Y-A-N-N-R-E-I-D. Or you can go to my website, which is joyannereid.com, J-O-Y-A-N-N-R-E-I-D.com. You'll see all the information, including my upcoming t- uh, event t- t- today in New Rochelle, New Rochelle, New York, where I'm going to be with Delta Sigma Theta speaking about the book. Thank you, Joy. Right. Thank you, Joy, for joining us this morning. We are out of time. Thank she knows you. when we're out of time, we have to go. So I want to thank Joy Reed for joining <laughs> us this morning. And of course, my co-host, Jennifer Jones Austin. Let me thank our production team, our producer, thank you. Knowledge Born. Thank you, Joy. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Our producer, Knowledge Born. Our associate producer, Robin Williams. Uh, production assistant, Juliana Mervell. And tech producer, Rick Wright. And folks, remember, one of the greatest tragedies in life is living life without a purpose. Without a purpose, life has no meaning, no significance, no hope. It's just activity without direction, events without reason, just living pointless. And most of all, life becomes motion without any true meaning and direction. So live your life to the fullest, a life of purpose and a life of meaning. You've been listening to Open Line right here on 107.5 WBLS with Brother Fatine and Jennifer Jones Austin Esquire. We look forward to being back with you next Sunday, same time, same place. Have a great Sunday. Peace.